0: Tariq Davis asks, what is the best school to attend for a marine mechanic? And what I'm going to do is give you my opinion about what I did and what I would do differently because back in 2011, I did go to MMI, which is UTI there in Florida. I spent about $35,000 going to that school and looking back at what I learned and what I know and now working in the industry for over a decade, this is going to be my opinion. I think that trade schools have a really good position in the industry, um, as far as being able to take someone that has no experience whatsoever, get them familiar with tools and engines, uh, the, the differences between four-stroke, two-stroke combustion, all the different phases and cycles of an engine, a combustion engine, and then also some exposure to brands, models, um, And then they kind of the whole gamma of the marine industry. It's a good entry level thing that gets people exposure to products. Now, as far as, is it worth it to everybody? I don't think so. I think also it's going to depend on you personally and what you want to do. Like if you've kind of got three different areas that you can go into in the industry. If you want to be a mechanic, you know, you're turning wrenches, you're, you're a mechanic. You're thinking about you. You're thinking about fixing boats, fixing engines and getting, you know, the job done. Then there's also the corporate path where you're working for Mercury, you know, Yamaha, Suzuki, Honda, a yacht brand. You could be a salesman, work in a parts department, a marina, those kinds of things like service work. And then also there's you know manufacturer work, which is boat building, stuff like that. And then maybe even I would even include factory work. So, like if you work at a factory in the actual production of an engine, stuff like that. But based on those different things, different schools are going to be better or worse for that stuff. If you want to be a boat builder, then going to a boat building school where you learn about the, the structural integrity of an engine or of a boat, how it's made, how it's put together, all the different systems, how it's designed and those kinds of things, that's going to probably be more beneficial than tris trying to get into a job somewhere, because I'm sure most of these boat building brands aren't just trying to hire someone with no experience into that kind of work. Whereas the other ones, if you're trying to do the corporate ladder thing and then just, you know, go up the corporate ladder working for one of these big brands, then you could probably just get in, get a job and go in there. I don't think there's that much training for that kind of thing or for the factory work. But as far as for someone that wants to turn wrenches, that's a whole different subject all on of its own because it's all about experience and you personally, because what you get paid is going to depend on your experience. Here's just some older numbers that I pulled from, I think this is BoatUS.com. So it says the earning potential for annual salaries, um, entry-level boat builders tend to make low to mid 30000 System technicians tend to make high 30000 to low 40000 Yacht designers tend to make 40000 to mid 50000 and then there is some more numbers. The unskilled yard labor earned $16 per hour on average with a range of eight to $26. Mechanics earn an average hourly wage of $22. Electronics technicians, $24 yard foreman, 24 75. A general manager can expect a median wage of $36 an hour with a range from 16 to $116 an hour. That's um, a pretty wide range, but that kind of gives you an idea. As a mechanic, you're probably looking as an entry-level person making around 20 bucks an hour, somewhere around there, depending on where you live. And then you know, mid-level, you're looking 25 to $30 an hour. Upper level, you might be looking 30, 35. And then once you become a really good mechanic, you can make into the 40s, depending on where you work, what the location is, what the workforce is available, and again, what tools you have and your skill level. But looking at that, and thinking about going to a school like what I did was, you know, spent almost 35 grand, not including all the living expenses while I was there and the 12 months of time that I spent in doing that. Looking back at it, if you have a basic level of mechanical understanding, you have a basic tool set, and like you could, you know, you could go into a marina and do a, a service on an engine and be able to provide value to a marina or someone else that is willing to hire you then it personally I would have probably went that route just because 12 months of experience in a marina work, you know working around other mechanics in a in an environment where it's every you are in the day-to-day operations of a company and I know this is kind of a problem because everybody looks at the marine industry and says that oh you know it's 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 such the wild west of everything because you drop your boat off. The customer and the business already knows they're going to tell you you're going to have your boat by Friday. But in reality, you won't get your boat for another three weeks. And so that's kind of a downside of that. I know there are companies out there that are trying to change that to where it'd be more like, you know, if you take your car somewhere and you drop it off, you really go into a waiting room. You wait. They change the oil. You get your car back right then and there but a boat is a little different there's a little bit more complex and there's a lot more going on it's not really a i need my car so i can get to work it's this is a boat so it's more recreational so i think the time frames there are a little bit um not as required but at the same time i get that that's a problem and obviously you don't want to have that issue and they say that all oh, the technicians are the problem because of the training the business owners are the problem because they don't have the labor or they they run their business poorly, whatever. You can give any kind of excuse that you want, but you're going to have that no matter what you do because it's business and people are going to run a business the way they want to run it and you're going to have the people in there however the people are and not you're never going to be able to fulfill all these positions of skilled mechanics all over the world because it seems like an impossible feat. If someone can figure that out, then kudos to them. But talking to people like Tariq, that want to become a mechanic, I'm talking about you and, and you alone, not necessarily the business owners and the industry leaders and all these other people, the people that want to be mechanics. That's what I'm saying is for you. It's about you and what you make. You're the one that has to spend the money. You got to buy the tools. And it's your experience level based on how valuable you can make yourself and how quickly you can get there. So if you want to become a higher paid technician, then you need to be the best technician that you can be as quickly as possible. Now, obviously there's people out there that are going to want to take the quick route. They're going to cut corners. They're going to learn all the cheat codes they are going to do shoddy labor and burn bridges. But if that, I'm not talking about those people, that's hopefully not you. And that's why I think that becoming hireable is going to be more of the question and more important than necessarily going to a school. Because a school is always going to be a school setting. You're going to have sessions, you're going to have semesters, you're going to have you know, time and everything else. But I'm, I'm thinking that there might be a better way, which is what we're trying to do with our boaters program and making a certain section of it for people that want to become mechanics. Because if you can put in the work and become hireable, then that's going to change your life. That's going to make you more valuable and hireable than someone that spends 12 months to go to school. Because if you can spend one, two, three, four weeks learning the skills that a marina or a shop wants you to have, then you're going to be hireable. That's what MMI did for me in general. I did learn a lot about engines and got my hands on the equipment, but at the same time, it made me hireable. I was able to leave there and go to a marina and them actually look at me as somebody that they would hire and have work at their marina. It wasn't necessarily anything more than that. And even getting into that marina was a, was a problem all in of itself because they, they didn't really want me because I didn't have any experience. That was the downside to that is I actually had to go there um, three or four times asking for a job. And kind of a funny story, how I did that is that I literally just showed up when they opened and asked them, Hey, are you, know, are you hiring? I just got out of MI. I want to be a mechanic, blah, 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 the whole deal. And they told me that, no, they didn't have any work. And I just went back three more times over the period of three weeks. And finally of me showing up in the morning when they opened looking for a job, they finally like, okay, we'll get, we'll find you something to do. And they gave me a job. But that was a whole different world than today where now we have a whole void in the industry of there's not there's not very many mechanics. There's way too many boats and not enough skilled mechanics out there and marinas and everything suffering because of that, which is why I'm thinking if you are hireable, then that'll change everything for you. Because if you can learn the skills as far as like how parts work, how the parts programs work, um, super session change of the parts, the different systems on an engine and can do like normal services on pretty much any engine. Now, all of a sudden you are hireable because because a shop owner can look at you and say, oh, this guy can get parts. He understands the part numbers. He understands the systems of the engine and he can do a service so he can they can hire you and have you perform service work from the, from the first day. And now all of a sudden you are generating revenue for the company. You're hireable. You are valuable now to a company to hire, to do a service and make them money. But now all of a sudden talking to you, you got your foot in the door. Now is a different story because now you can, you're going to be around other mechanics that you're going to be able to learn from. And the things that you're going to learn actually hands-on watching someone else work is going to, it's going to, it's going to skyrocket your experience level. And I think companies like even Marine Max and stuff, though, you know, everyone's different, but they kind of have a really good thing where they are hiring people and they might put somebody with another technician and shadow them for X amount of time like you know say you're a brand new tech you can do service work this that and the other but there, the company is willing to invest in you and have you shadow another mechanic for say three months that's a whole different ball game because you'll spend three months next to somebody that has say five years of experience that three months is going to give you more experience than what you would learn in a trade school only because it's it's real life. It's like, you can't create experience. That's something that every school has a problem with is creating experience that there's things that you learn on the field, on the job that is just not replicable in a classroom setting. I mean, you can do the best they can. And when it comes to Like getting, you know, diagnostics and stuff like that, showing how the systems work, but actually being able to put it into practice, like on the daily setting, it's just different. I'm not really sure how to explain it, but it is. And so when we're talking about the subject, as far as becoming a mechanic, that's kind of what, what I think people should try and do is figure out how to get hireable, get yourself into, into a shop and be shadowing somebody, get your hands on as many boats as you can and do as much work as you can try and provide value to the other mechanics that are there in that shop, because then they will hopefully be able to put some effort into you and teach you some of the things that they know. And then over the period of a year, that 12 months that you would have spent in a school, that 12 months working on the job, um, you're no longer that entry level technician. You're going to go from being worth $20 an hour to being worth, you know, $25, 26 $27 an hour because of the things that you can do. And if you put that on a three-year track, um, well, now all of a sudden, instead of going from, you know, 12 months in a school, one month, just getting yourself to, you know, 12 months, getting yourself at the marina and starting to work. And then another 12 months to get to that three-year period, you're probably going to be worth $5, $10 more an hour because of the real world experience that you have. So it's almost like it's going to save you 12, 15 months. Again, depends on you, your location, what you work on, the work that's available in that area, because obviously it depends on the work. I mean, if there's not a high paying job around there, then you're not going to make that much. But if you're in a busy area with a lot of boats and there's a lot of you know stuff to work on, then you're going to get more experience. You're going to learn quicker and you're going to become a better mechanic a lot quicker. And that's just my two cents. And one of the thing actually though, is that also being at someone like somewhere like that is that now you are also open to going to, um, manufacturer training. So say you work at a mercury dealer or you work at a Yamaha dealer, both, both of those companies now are doing service training work. So like you can get to into a marina and if you have value to, you know, be able to make the marina money. Then, after a couple months, they might be willing to send you to certain, you know, training there with Mercury or Yamaha, which is going to get you on a path to being certified from the manufacturer, which is valuable to the to the dealership, and it's also valuable to you as your career path. Uh, most people that want to be mechanics want to get to become a master mechanic and all that. So, the sooner you get on that pathway the sooner you'll get it out because it does take time to go down that pathway. So being in a job, if you have a background and are mechanically inclined, I would say making yourself hireable is what you're going to want to do because that'll get you into a job. That's kind of what we're focusing on right now at the boaters program is being able to assist people that want to become a mechanics and making them valuable and hireable for a shop. That way they can get a job, start making money and start becoming a mechanic and becoming the best mechanic that they can as quickly as possible. Something else to consider though, too, is that if you are in an opportunity where you have, you know, scholarships available, or maybe you're a veteran that you've got a GI bill that you could use. Now, this is going to change the subject all in of itself, because if you can get into the school without having to come out of pocket for the 30, 35 grand, whatever it is, and it takes off the financial burden and you just have to go to the school, then, you know, that's a whole different thing. And it makes the school way more appealing to you as a mechanic because now you can get all that education and the experience and everything of the school, of the whole system and learn, you know, professionalism and other things like that. But you're, getting away from having to take the financial burden of getting debt and then putting that on yourself as well. So that is something to consider about. If that's your situation, then it's way more appealing to go to the school than it is to, you know, go straight to work. But at the same time, again, if you're mechanically inclined, going straight to work is going to be, you know, obviously going to have its benefits too in the experience department. Now, moving on Dustin Keating, I got a 2007 Yamaha 115, two stroke and I think it's bulletproof, a bulletproof motor. I do agree with you Dustin, the that that 115 Yamaha phenomenal engine. I think all the all those Yamaha, all those two strokes, um the the 75, the 90, the 115, even that old 130, the four cylinder V4, those things we're bulletproof. Um, you can check out the, that boat guy. I mean, he did the one with the 9.9 and just watch what he does to that engine, throwing it in the water while it's running, packing the carburetor full of sand. I mean, just burying the engine, running it with no impeller till it just shuts off. And then once he cools it down, it starts right back up. Um, you got to hand it to Yamaha. They just, indestructible was those two strokes james i was wondering how do you add a power pack to adjust your tilt to the transom on most motors or can you just let the pressure off with a screwdriver the tilt motor and do it manually so this is talking about getting the trim angle on like an engine so say you're trying to mount an outboard to the back of a boat on the transom a lot of times once you get that outboard hanging um, it just won't match up with the transom so you need to be able to Take that engine, hit the trim button, and be able to trim the engine to match the bracket to the transom to make it easy to mount up. And yeah, you can use the manual relief valve, but by and large, I would just try and take a jump pack and hook it to the power and ground of the engine so you can use the trim button. Some engines, like the Mercury, they won't let you do that because you need clean power for the computer to have power because that's what's controlling the trim unit. But inside the cowling pan, you can pull up the two wires that go down to the trim motor, disconnect the bullet connectors, put those to the power pack, and then move that trim motor back and forth to get that right where you want it in order to, you know, match up your bracket to your transom. Bronze, black brownies, any tips on the best way to set carb idle screws and idle on a 1998 150 Yami VMAX? Not really. I did pick this thing up right here. This is something that you could probably find on eBay. These are super nice. This is a yamaha marine tune-up spec is actually 1994 to 2006 and these things are super useful because they will give you all of the specs that you want and um yeah here you go here is your 150 from 1998 now let's see if i can get this to focus here so right there you can kind of read it so On here, you've got your car pilot screw turnout for the V-150 for the port and one and nine sixteenths turned for the starboard, meaning you put the idle screw all the way in and then you turn it out that far. It also gives you everything else, you know, idle speed, neutral, 700 RPM plus minus 25 idle speed in gear, 570, 570 RPM plus minus 25, um, ignition timing after top dead center seven negative seven degrees plus minus two degrees spark plug gaps and and all that other stuff so uh, these things are pretty sweet you should try and find one of those or maybe on ebay or something like that they make them all through pretty much the entire line of engines that yamaha made and when it comes to setting idle screws and stuff like that you know i mean look you're talking about a 1998 you got a 25 year old carburetor just going off those turnouts might not really gets you right where you need to be um, because the carburetors are getting worn out. The jets are getting worn out. I mean, everything's old and worn out. So um, it might take a little more play than it will with that. Main thing is you just want to make sure that they're all pretty much in sync and you don't want to be lean. Uh, being too lean on a cylinder is not good, especially on those old two strokes, because that's how they get their oil is it all goes in through the intake and that oil is what oils everything in that engine from You know, the crankcase to the cylinders, ports, the whole nine yards, the operation of a two-stroke. And so making sure that you are not lean is a big deal. The fuel even cools the cylinders, so you kind of want to make sure that that's right. Boomin S10, if you mix resin with the Bondo, it will make it thinner, so it's easier to work with, and just about self-levels, depending on how much resin you add, which makes for a little less sanding Um, that's true. I didn't know that. Um, I only said that's true because I read, you said that earlier, pretty interesting to know. Um, because Bondo is something that for one, everybody hates Bondo, especially when you're talking about boats and, um, it is pretty thick and kind of, um, it's thick. That's, that's the best word to say is that it's thick. So I didn't know that if you added the resin, it will thin it out to help it make itself leveling. So, Thank you. The second you cut that hose, your warranty is voided. Bad idea all around the, the they flush hose as well designed as is from the factory. Is it really that much more convenient RIP to the folks that rush out and do this to their motor? Well, I'm, so this is actually on a video talking about how to add a flush outside of the engine. Um, Kind of difficult to show people how to do things because it's interesting when you look at the different experiences that people have based on the area that they are now, I mean, as far as the warranty goes on that, I don't really, I don't speak for Yamaha or Mercury or any of these other companies, but I don't know if that's really going to void your warranty all these engines are now coming with the ability to have the flush attachment made to the boat. And there's tons of manufacturers out there that are selling you boats that have these flush attachments on there in the boat where you just hook it up and it flushes your engines. So they are already doing that. Now, if you have that hose and that hose is spraying water all over the engine and you have a problem based on that. Yeah, that might be a problem with your warranty, but if you have an issue with the lower unit and you blow up your lower unit because you have a flush attachment on there they're going to deny your warranty i don't know if that's i don't know if i would go that far i mean i know mainly mercury and yamaha are the the best and those are the two best companies out there when it comes to warranty and to be honest with you they're like like i said the best i mean they stand by their products they make some of the best products on the in in the world and yeah it's. I don't know if that really is going to void your warranty because you do something like that, unless that causes a problem, which then it's not warrantable because a warranty is based on a manufacturer defect. So if there's something wrong with your engine, then there's something wrong with your engine. That's warrantable. If you have an engine failure based on something that was a manufacturer defect, that's what's warrantable. Not necessarily this kind of deal, like I said, you know, if there's a problem with your trim unit or with the lower unit or something like that, that's totally irrelated. And to think that Yamaha or Mercury or any of these companies would deny a warranty claim for something like that based on that, I don't know if I would say that. And also what I, what really people don't see is that you're packing that down into a 60 second video. And actually the reason for doing things like that is the person that owns that boat is older he is no longer physically able enough to get underneath a, a polling platform on the back of this boat. It's not a pulling platform, it's a tow bar, but it goes over the engine and the, and the outboard is in the back of the boat on a pontoon. He can't get back there. He doesn't have the physical ability anymore and this is for an older person. And so to have that up there to be easier for them, that's what it's about. So everybody keeps talking about the flush attachment. Oh, it's already good the way it was yeah in certain situations but you don't you're not thinking about this person that no longer has the physical abilities to get down there and do that so this is more for someone else and also um if you do this kind of stuff on older engines that don't have warranty then i mean it doesn't really matter but yeah that's it's because someone that does that is because it's a convenience for them and they might not be physically able to use it the way it is. So that's really that big of a problem. Slipstream vids two strokes use raw fuel to cool the cylinders. 7% of the fuel you buy gets dumped directly into the water through the exhaust. That was the standard of outboard propulsion for a hundred years. Nice. Um, I don't know if it's truly 7%. I mean, it is true that yeah, two strokes do use the fuel to help cool these cylinders, but, um, I don't know if 7% is the right number or not. That's interesting that you say that. I would like to see some numbers on that, but pretty funny either way. Manuel Fuertes, what's the smallest outboard with an alternator? Um, Well, pretty much every outboard from like a five horsepower up has some, some kind of charging ability. I mean, most of them either have a lighting coil or a stator or something like that. Once it gets to an actual physical alternator, um, I guess it depends on the brand because there's a lot of brands out there that call a stator an alternator because it's what it does. Um, but like when you think about an alternator as like you know an external component that's belt driven, I don't know if Mercury's 60 horse does, I want to say their 75 has an alternator, and so basically, 75 and up for Mercury has an alternator, and I want to say 60 down has a stator. Not 100% on those breakdowns, but then pretty much everything else has either a stator or an alternator. So if you're talking about actually just charging a physical battery, then yeah, pretty much all outboards have the ability to charge a the battery for you. As crazy, Aaron, what are your thoughts on using hydro fluid in place of c star power steering? Seems like a rip to me. I've run both, can't see any difference. Wondering if you have, um. I really don't know. I mean, I can't really tell the difference. I'm sure that once you get into it um, with pressure and temperatures and you're adding joysticks and um, power assist pumps, stuff like that, maybe it'll make a little bit of a difference, but yeah, I'm kind of with you. I can't really tell a difference. I'm sure um, C-Star and other companies are obviously going to have their own reason for what they do. They've got their own product. That's better, the best for them. It's just kind of the way it is. I can't tell the difference when you put, atf in a steering system and um, use it but again there's probably some things that we don't really know about when you're talking about pressure temperature stuff like that power assist but who knows kevin lynch pro tip never secure your boat with the stern facing open water or where waves or boat wakes can come from. I have seen an experienced boaters wake up in the morning and find their boats swamped personal tips by proper dock lines and longer lines than you think. I think bow and stern lines can be up to the length of your boat. The two spring lines should be more than the length of your boat. If you have two sets of bow and stern line dock lines, you can be ready to approach a dock from either available side I'm not going to read the rest of that, but this is talking about how to type your boat. And yes, these are all very, very important things. That's kind of the premise of that whole video is longer lines. Um, Like he said, you want lines pretty much the same length of your boat from the back to the front and then from the front to the back, keeping the boat tight against the dock, but at the same time having the ability to go up and down. If you've got really short lines then the distance of this, is very different, so this will hang, and your boat will hang and flip over, whereas if you've got a long line like this, you've got a lot more of a swing up and down, so tying your lines from the back, and then running it to the bow of the boat, and then tying it from the front of the boat, and running it to the back of the boat, gives that long line the ability to go up and down with a tide, and then yeah, for sure, having the bow out, that's why most boats, most places do dock their boats with the bow out, because of stuff like that waves wake especially if you're like you said open water i mean you don't want to face your boat stern out on the open water because it one rogue wave or one you know boat that goes by could cause a serious problem for you not to mention inboard boats that have exhausts or through hole exhausts um, on the back can get water pushed up into the engine and cause a big problem so definitely definitely all good tips daryl been watching your channel for years and i really enjoy it i wanted some input on your experience i did a pour in transom and my stern is way heavy now but do able i don't want to spend a fortune on a new motor just to find a lighter one would adding would adding weight towards the bow be sufficient? I imagine my performance would suffer, but I'm more concerned about structural integrity of the boat. If I, came, if I come down hard on ocean waves, it's a fiberglass 19-foot 1989 Marlin that I took a 125 force off and replaced with a 2005 115 Yamaha, which is about 70 pounds heavier. Thank you. Um, I don't know, did a Marlin ever come with an outboard on it? I don't really, I don't know about that. So I need to look into that because the ones that I've ever seen are like their bow rider, 19 foot comes with an inboard swim deck, you know, that whole kind of deal. It's an inboard boat. So if we're talking about that kind of Marlin that has been converted to put a a bracket on and then put an outboard, um, yeah, that's a lot of change for the integrity of a boat. I don't really know what's going to happen when you get into adding weight to the front of the boat and it being um, that much weight in the back because now not only did you lose 10 horsepower, so you, so now you're, you're less power and 70 pounds heavier. So if you are, you took the weight of the inboard out of the boat, so that's going to change some things. Then put a bracket, that's going to be weight. And then an, an outboard on top of that, that's even more weight and then the poured in transom to thicken it up to support that. Um, that is a lot of changes on a boat. I don't know about structural integrity. All you can do is basically fill up water bottles, put them in the front, bow the boat and hope and see and go out and run it. See what happens. See how it handles it. I don't know. You might even want to check how the transom, how the stringers are tied into the transom and what kind of support that has. Because, um if you've poured the transom in, you've added that weight, but but I don't know the structural integrity of that because now I don't know, I've never used a poured in transom. So when I'm thinking about this, you've got the outside glass, the inside glass, and the inside of the hull has rotten. So you poured stuff in there and it drained all the way down and then got hard. Now, what is the real adherence to this side and this side? Like, does it, I mean, no grinding happened. So I really don't know. I don't have any experience with the pouring fiberglass stuff. I would be kind of thinking about looking in the, in the boat. What are the stringers doing to attach to the transom? Because that's going to be a pretty structural section of the boat where, you know, if these stringers are not tied into the transom. Well, then all this weight, you know, if you got the boat, here's all this weight back here, and these stringers aren't tied to that transom, then, you know, this weight, you come down hard on a, on a wave, then yeah, you are putting a lot of leverage there and potentially causing a problem. So check those stringers, see how that's attached. And then I'll look into a Marlin. I don't know if they ever came with an outboard. I've only ever seen ones that's got an inboard. So that's what I'm going off of. I don't know if that really is very helpful or not, Eric, um maybe a fun discussion for the podcast. I am restoring an, o- an oyster boat, have the deck ripped out, moving the pilot house as far up to the bow as possible, new fuel tank, et cetera. I'm debating whether to foam under the deck or not. Boat will have no hatches, no bilge, and will be self bailing an entirely sealed deck bow to stern. Would you put closed cell in between the stringer cavities, unnecessary weight or useful buoyancy? Let's talk it out. So Eric, um, sweet on the project. And I mean, I don't know if you really want to get a hundred percent away from not having a bilge because, um, I don't know if you can ever 100% seal it from not getting any water in it ever from the bow. So, From the front of the engine or from the front of the boat in the bow, there's got to be some kind of an anchor locker or something. Generally, though, that section of the boat, you've got this whole thing ripped up and you're redoing it. So something to think about then would be that anchor locker is going to have a drain somewhere in it. Um, and then also that's going to usually, usually that goes down the bow into and runs the keel of the boat all the way back to the back. And there's usually pipes going down the keel from the front to the back that go through all the different bulkhead portions of the boat, including where the fuel tank is. So if you 100% seal everything off, then for sure. I mean, some foam in the outside for buoyancy, um, in the outside bulkhead pockets, along the front all the way to the back for sure whether or not you get rid of the um the back half of the boat and the front half generally that's some used for storage so if you completely seal that deck off then your two front pockets if you can make it to where there's no way water can get down that middle section i don't know if you can or not but foam in the front I don't know if the weight is really going to be a factor because of the buoyancy that it adds, but those two front pockets, maybe some foam, the sides could be foamed. And then where the fuel tank is, as well as the back two sections of the boat, I'm just trying to imagine how long. So we're talking a maybe 23 foot boat, I'm guessing. I don't know. So you're probably going to have a few feet in the back where the bilge is right now. You might even think about leaving that open, but, I guess what you're trying to do is get rid of that and have there no way for water to get down and just be a straight self bailing boat because you're using it for oyster. And so you're going to be getting a lot of water coming into the boat. So you want it all to go out really quick. I don't know how the deck is because if it's self bailing, how high is the deck proportionate based on the boat itself? Like, you know, when the boat's sitting in the water and it's going through the water and waves are going down the gunwale and stuff like that, As far as it being self bailing how high is the deck off of the water line? And adding the foam, I really don't know the mathematics of determining how much buoyancy you get versus the weight of the foam. Definitely do the closed cell. You don't want to do anything that's going to be able to take in water because that's going to add weight and that could potentially be a problem. Again, can you 100% seal the sections so that way no water can get in there? that you're going to have to, you know, you're doing the boat. So if you can glass all that stuff in, and then again, the ink locker, I don't know exactly um, that section of the boat, how that looks, or even, you know, if there's a way to allow that to be closed off, then I don't know. I think the, the, ma- the only main question that you have is going to be the mathematical equations to figure out the buoyancy versus the weight of the foam. And does the buoyancy, you know, account for the weight and will it bring the boat up? I mean, as far as the whole side sections, yeah, for sure. Foam those, maybe the front sections, foam those, but you are getting rid of a lot of storage when you do that. Um, also you're going to have to think about like, are you going to be using any kind of, um, you know, water systems on the boat? Like, are you going to need to have a live well at some point in time? Um, cause now you're going to, Probably have to make something on the outside of the boat. So like say on the back of the boat, also, is this an inboard or outboard boat, but something on the back of the boat where you can mount a live wall or something to pump water into the boat to get water flow, some sort of a wash down system. Um, that's something to think about because if you get rid of your builds, then you won't have any through hauls or no access to any of that stuff to have it built inside the boat. So you would need to make something like if it's got trim tabs, you can maybe mount a you know live oil pump on the on your trim tab or make a bracket off the back of the boat where that pump is going to be mounted so that way you can get water in for your washdown systems. Lots of stuff to think about there. And, and then also when you seal that thing up, is unless everything's going down the gunnel, the only rigging that you're going to also need to have some sort of access to is going to be the fuel lines. So you're going to need some way to get to you know, put your fuel fill in, put your fuel vent in, and then also to get to the back. You're going to need also areas to get the fuel sender wires up to your gauge. And then if you ever have a problem with that, then you have no access to that. Just something to think about as far as that goes. I think that's all I'm going to have for this time. So if you want anything else, drop it in the comments below, email us at b a b at boarding or check us out at the bonus program at bornagainbillion.com, and we'll see you next week.